This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the Nursing World Shared Practice Forum. I am Jennifer Stedman, a staff nurse too in the Medical Intensive Care Unit and coach for the Nurse Education Support Team at Boston Children's Hospital. I am pleased today to introduce Dr. Maureen Hillier. Dr. Hillier is currently a pediatric critical care nurse in the Medical Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Boston Children's Hospital, where she has cared for patients and families for more than 25 years. She has recently been appointed assistant professor at the Massachusetts General Hospital Institute for Health Professions. During the past 10 years, she has served as a pediatric clinical instructor and a simulation educator for many of the baccalaureate nursing programs in the New England area. Dr. Hillier has a master's degree with a focus on nursing education and completed her doctorate in nursing practice in 2015. Her quality improvement project involved interviews with newly licensed nurses and their experiences with end of life in the PICU. Her DMP capstone project entitled Utilization of High Fidelity Simulation to Support Newly Licensed Nurses with End of Life in the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit was an unfolding case study that involved three simulation scenarios with the child and family at the end of life. The pilot has gained institutional funding and is now included in the hospital-wide new graduate critical care program. Dr. Hillier is currently involved in the initiatives at Boston Children's Hospital to better understand moral distress in the pediatric critical care nursing, which aims to find creative ways to better support frontline nurses. Along with her many other accomplishments, Dr. Hillier has earned the title of CHSE, or Certified Healthcare Simulation Educator. Only a little over a thousand healthcare simulationists worldwide have the CHSE designation, which is one of the many reasons I'm so excited to hear from you today about your end-of-life simulation. Welcome, Maureen, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jennifer. Let's start with having you share some details about your end-of-life simulation program. I'd be happy to. This is a highly um, interactive simulation learning experience that we offer two to three times per year here at Boston Children's. Um, we send invitations out by email to all of our newly licensed nurses with less than three years of practice in any of our um, pediatric intensive care units. It's an optional learning experience. And just of note, um, this was recently incorporated into the NEST initiative, the Nursing Education Support Team initiative, to support our frontline nurses with ethically and morally challenging problems found in practice. This is typically a four to five hour day. Um, we have six to eight participants per simulation learning day. Um, so that incorporates usually two to three newly licensed nurses per scenario. And then we live stream it for our other participants to watch. Uh, we do ask that our participants have a little bit of homework that they have to do before they show up for the um, simulation learning experience. And we ask them to view a really um, poignant video entitled On Being Present, Not Perfect by Dr. Elaine Meyer. This is a 20-minute TED Talk um, that we actually later incorporate into the debriefing, but it really sets our participants into the right um, effective domain to understand the topic matter for the end of life and critical care. Um, on the day of the simulation, we have a warm-up activity, um, something similar to like two truths and a lie. Perhaps you've heard mm -hmm. of that. Really informal, but it's really just a way to encourage our participants to get to know one another. 
We do um, then that progresses to a simulation pre-brief utilizing the Anaxal standards of best practice. And Anaxal stands for International Nursing Association of Clinical Simulation and Learning. Um, so we share our learning objectives with the participants so there's no surprises. We orient them to the simulation environment so they can become a little familiar. And we really stress that this is a safe learning environment where it's okay to make mistakes, right? We'd rather have participant mm -hmm. learners make mistakes in the simulation environment rather than the clinical environment. We also introduce the confidentiality clause, but what happens in simulation stays there. So we don't have people talking outside of the simulation learning experience, and we have all participants sign a um, consent form. So basically, this is an unfolding simulation scenario that involves Megan. Um, Megan Moriarty, she's a five-year-old. She actually lives at home with SMA, and that stands for spinal muscle atrophy, and she has type 1, the most severe form. Um, and she unfortunately experiences equipment malfunction at home. She has a cardiac arrest and is brought to the emergency room. So in the simulation, we actually utilize the mannequin to play the role of five-year-old Megan, and we actually use live actors, um, a mom and a dad, to play the role um, of her parents. Um, and these are called standardized patients in simulation, so those are the family members. So this is really what makes the simulation what we call high fidelity, very authentic, very believable. So we progress to have three unfolding simulations that um, really primarily evolve around three topics, meeting and greeting a family, redirection of care, and actually saying farewell to a family. So what made you decide to create an end-of-life simulation that's specifically designed for the newer nurse? Over time, newer nurses have quietly confided in me, but they were really scared, actually, to take care of patients at end of life. Um, they thought, I'd only done it once before. Can you help me? I've never done a terminal extubation off of ECMO. Can you help me? Um, so I started to realize as more and more people quietly kind of came up to me and shared some of their, I guess, secrets, if you will, mm -hmm. that this was um, a real void um, and that these newly licensed nurses needed more support and an opportunity to perhaps practice in a safe learning environment. And we do know that research demonstrates up to 40% of newly licensed nurses describe feelings of discomfort caring for patients who were actively dying. That's from the adult literature. And we can only imagine from the pediatric literature, it's that much more intense. Nursing ed education has really identified gaps in student knowledge. It to really a suboptimal amount of theoretical and experiential content on death and dying in our current nursing curriculums. So therefore, we realized that our, really our newly licensed nurses here had gaps in their clinical experience because they were really coming out of the protected environment of academia, where they had little, if any, experience with end of life with adults, let alone children. Um, but yet, you know, when we have our newly licensed nurses go through our standard six-month orientation program, we expect them to complete this at sort of Patricia Benner, if you're familiar with her, that novice to expert continuum, to really sort of land in that sort of competent range um, where they need to demonstrate clinical skill and competence and judgment and be attentive and present to support the child and family. I would like to stop here and take a moment to pose a question to our audience. If you are a clinician... Did your educational program prepare you for end-of-life care? If yes, how so? And if not, are there specific things that you wish had been covered? Could you maybe talk us through the simulation experience, describe to our viewers what it might look like or how it unfolds? Absolutely. So our first simulation is actually the meeting and greeting of a family, how they come in after this profound event at home. Um, the newly licensed nurse enters the room um, as a confederate provider is wrapping up a lengthy conversation, stating to the parents that it's unlikely that 
the child will have a meaningful chance of survival. And when I use the word confederate, that means that's um, typically either a physician or a nurse practitioner that is aware of the simulation. They know they're kind of given a charge to deliver the bad news, if you will. So they've just spent an hour at the bedside, perhaps talking to the family, and sort of the newly licensed nurses come in at the wrap-up, the 10-minute wrap-up. Um, so once again, this Confederate is really aware of our simulation objectives, and they really enhance realism. There's somebody that plays their role. So they come in and are delivering this bad news. Um, and then after our first simulation, we actually have a really uh, prolonged debriefing period where the newly licensed nurses share their experiences. They f we find that they have a lot that needs to be unraveled, that they need to discuss maybe their personal loss, perhaps what they've experienced already in the intensive care unit. They just need a safe forum to have a discussion about what it was like for perhaps them with their first end of life experience or perhaps learning from their neighbors as the, their neighbors in the critical care programs have cared for children who have passed away. So then we progress to our second simulation, which is actually involves redirection of care um, when the family has decided. Um, and we actually make it medically fairly straightforward. Um, the family in this particular simulation has already had a decision made amongst themselves that if anything horrific would ever happen, that they wouldn't want Megan sustained on major life support without good quality of life. So in this simulation, she's not responsive. She's, um, shall we say, living in a vegetative state. So the parents have already had that decision and discussion before actually coming in for this event. So um, they arrive at the decision to redirect care at the same time. So, um, And in this simulation, medications are given. Um, so um, which medications? Would it be Versed or morphine or both? Um, how much to give? Um, how fast to give it? Do we leave the monitors on or off? Mm -hmm. And we actually have the parents um, crawling into bed with the child. So sometimes this catches our newly licensed nurses a little off guard because they don't really right. know what's the correct way to do it. And there really isn't a correct way. You mm -hmm. just have to let it unfold and try it out for size and follow the parents' lead. And then our third simulation, the, the newly licensed nurses help the family members pack up the pictures, the belongings, the, the blankets, the special toys and mementos and books, and actually say farewell. Um, and knowing that that child, that family is leaving without their child in tow, pulling out of the parking garage. Um, it's just profoundly sad. It really is. But it's, once again, just a chance for newly licensed nurses to practice in a safe, protected environment. Um, and then it's literally saying, literally walking them to the door or to the elevator to say good farewell um, to them. Our institutional morgue um, down in pathology, um, we have time set aside to actually travel down there with our newly licensed nurses and participants. And we meet some of their staff to help our newly licensed nurses understand sort of the process of what goes on when we bring a child to the morgue. Um, so we meet with their um, staff and you know, they, this, it's actually pretty enlightening. The, the participants that go say they learn a lot. We actually get behind the scenes and see actually how an autopsy is done. We see perhaps 4,700 hearts that are sort of kept here for research. So it's just, a, it's above and beyond what you would ordinarily see if you did have to go to the morgue, but it adds a lot of context um, for our new, newly licensed, most vulnerable nurses to really understand the process. And we always, always, always make ourselves available for follow-up afterwards. If people are having a hard time with it, we send follow-up emails the next day after people have had a chance to process things. And we just make connections so that if folks need a person to talk to, we're there to do that.
Now, Marina, I remember when I participated in your program, there was a debriefing process. Would you mind explaining to us a little bit about that process? Sure. We use the debriefing with good judgment model from Jenny Rudolph from the Center for Medical Simulation, um, where we really try to understand the learner's perspective, right? It's not about our perspective. It's understanding the learners. So we do that through three well-defined phases of the debriefing process. So that first phase, right, when they come into the debrief room after they've gone through this really highly powerful simulation, we have to address their reactions, right? That's the first stage where we really need to clean the air and clear it and set the stage for the discussion of both their feelings and facts. So for example, they typically come out of the first scenario feeling like overwhelmingly sad, like, I don't know what to say, maybe embarrassed, uncertain, confused about what they're supposed to do. So you actually, you have to address those emotional um, feelings before you can even go into the next phase of the debriefing. And that is the understanding phase. Um, that's where they try to make meaning of what just happened. So they really all, you have to start with our, what we call our medical understanding. So we usually, I go right back out to the participant learners and say, what's your understanding of what just happened in the simulation? So you have one learner sort of give a quick synopsis, all right? And you need to do that to put all of the learners on the same page, because if people are at different points, then the rest of the debriefing is going to be hard to manage. All right. So we have um, once again, that medical understanding, a synopsis of medically what happened. And then we really need to explore um, the participants' frames, like what is their understanding? Like perhaps where did they make a mistake? And you don't point it out as a mistake, but you say it more as a debriefer. You would say, help me understand what made you decide to turn off the cardiac monitor and when did you know how to do it? Um, so to basically partner with them to say, I understand that you did this. You're not saying it's right or wrong because it really isn't a right or wrong in, in these type of situations, right? Um, and help them understand their thought process, get them to articulate and talk a little bit more about it so the other participants in the room can actually learn. So during that understanding phase, we do a lot of um, informal teaching. Um, we can talk about, like, for example, the monitors once again or the medications and how fast to give them. And this is a great opportunity when it's done sort of informally for this really difficult topic to share our own life experiences, like where we, this, like young learners like to hear how we, how fast we might push morphine or midazolam, um, because sometimes they have feelings about hastening a child's death. So that actually leads into a great discussion about the principle of double effect. And because we have our Confederate physicians with us at this point, that's something that I oftentimes turn to them, and they can really articulate that really nicely. So we it's fairly informal. We bounce off of each other, but really try to support our learners with understanding what they did Maybe it wasn't the best, but it gives them a chance to talk through it and make sense of it. So that's that understanding phase. And then the third phase of the debriefing is what we call the summary phase, where we really distill the lessons learned, um, what worked well, and maybe what could they change the next time. And I always end by um, a circle in the room having every single participant, whether they're in the sim or just observing, live streamed, what's your takeaway point? Because I'm really encouraging the individual perspective of what's your understanding. And I really... Um, the younger the learner, I really almost have to encourage them a bit and say, I really encourage individual thought on this because no two people think alike. And we're very interested in what everybody has to bring to the table and share with us here today. So that's the debriefing with good judgment model and the three phases that I use. And it's used by many other simulation centers. So Maureen, would you talk a little bit about what makes this simulation so high fidelity? Absolutely, Jennifer. I think oftentimes with simulation, we think as high fidelity simulations as ones that include 
um, fancy ventilators, fancy IV machines, perhaps an arrest situation where it's looking at our team performance of lots of people giving medications at once or inserting a chest tube. What makes this simulation so high fidelity is actually the actresses and actors that pay the parent, um, the mom and the dad, and the personal effects in the room, such as a blanket from home, or their favorite dress that they wear from home, or their favorite storybook, or the family pictures that adorn the room, because those become talking points for our newly licensed nurses. And if they're not talking points, we encourage them to utilize them. But it really humanizes um, brings into context this child and this family and this life that they have outside of this devastating situation. So once again, it's not all about bells and whistles. It's about the authentic things that this family deems important. Maureen, let's stop again and ask our audience another question. Do you have an end-of-life simulation program at your hospital or facility? And if so, is it run by nurses? And who are the target participants? I had mentioned in your introduction a quality improvement study that you were involved in with newly licensed nurses and end-of-life care. Do you want to talk a little more about that project and how it helped you develop the simulation program? Oh, I'd be happy to because really that was the genesis of how this came to be. So this was a qualitative descriptive study where we actually interviewed newly licensed nurses working in all any of the critical care programs and how they were doing with end of life. And through that qualitative descriptive research, we really understood that they were on this journey um, that you just they just didn't know about it until they were there. They talked about dealing with sudden death, um, a predictable type of death. Um, they talked about all of the the many um, new feelings they experienced that they just had never because they'd never traveled down this pathway before. And they actually started through the course of the open ended questions started to offer recommendations about how. Things could be made better for the next generation of nurses or the people, just the nurses to follow. Um, and they really were actually asking for more support and a chance to perhaps, they, they couldn't quite articulate it. They just needed more support. So that's sort of what gave me the idea to utilize simulation as a safe place to practice end of life and help our newly licensed nurses feel more secure with their actions um, around dealing with patients and families at this very delicate, you know, time in their life. So I think really the, the qualitative descriptive research sort of grounded the simulation, sort of gave us a reason to do it. And in terms of the simulation itself, is there participant feedback that you'd be able to share with us? Oh, absolutely. When we've completed our simulations, we have standard evaluation forms that are done. And they, the simulation learning experience consistently receives high marks. People leave the simulation saying everybody should do this. Um, they feel empowered to sort of tackle this the next time it happens in the ICU. We once again make it safe so that participants can sort of let their emotions come out and be processed and begin to sort of deal with this so that they can turn around and take care of patients and families um, at this difficult time in their life. Um, the participants that go through this really state that it really just helped them to, to process and deal with this the next time they were in this sort of environment, or perhaps even if their neighbor was, to give counsel or advice to their colleagues that might be working in a bed space one or two away. Um, so just in general, it makes things easier for them the next time they have to do it. 
So you're describing a need for this type of education, and your simulation sounds like it's getting positive feedback. Do you know of any other places or programs that are doing something similar? Actually, yes. Um, there's something called LNEC, which stands for the End of Life um, Nursing Education Consortium. It actually started out in California on the West Coast, and um, they defined a need for all of us as nurses, actually, to become a little bit more proficient on end-of-life care delivery. Um, and there's different portions. This is a program that's gained a lot of national momentum, um, but they actually have subcategories within it. So, for example, I'm pediatric LNAC trained, sort of just specifically how to deal with children's and family at end-of-life. So um, this is a great resource. Anybody that's involved with end-of-life should really be LNAC trained. Um, and now we actually are learning, just this last year, um, LNAC now offers a lot of online modules that's actually now incorporated into undergraduate nursing programs. And I think three or four of the Western states offer this for free as a pilot. And now I think undergraduate programs, should their faculty decide, they can enroll in an LNAC module. I think it's six learning sessions. I think the price is about $29. So um, it's a great resource to have. It's much cheaper than a textbook. And it's something that they can always use to, to go back and refer to. Now let's take one more quick break to ask the audience this final question. Do you have specific materials such as online education programs, policies, procedures, publications, or other documents to educate nurses about end-of-life care? And if so, what materials do you use? So I know for myself as a coach for the nurse education and support team, and I did have the opportunity to attend your simulation and got a lot out of it. It's something that I would encourage not only newly licensed nurses, but anybody who had the opportunity to do because it's good to practice and something to have in our back pocket. And it's not something that happens all the time. So it was nice to have a safe place and an opportunity to practice that, even being an experienced RN. So Maureen, I know there have been some great comments from the newly licensed nurses who've taken this simulation. Would you mind sharing a few of them with us? Sure, I'd be happy to, Jennifer. Um, one um, critical care ICU nurse working in the cardiovascular program who was only about six months in practice stated, um, it showed me that when you don't know what to say, sometimes silence and just being present can be the most therapeutic. So I think through that comment, we learned the power of silence. Great. I think newly licensed nurses are oftentimes afraid of silence, but they learn through the simulation that silence is, can actually be their friend. They just need to learn to be comfortable with it. Another medical surgical ICU nurse who's been in practice for 10 months stated, listen carefully to the parents' word choices and keep your ears open for opportunities to explore their feelings with them. So it just talks once again to the power of listening, you know, uh, understanding the words that the parents use. Those are going to be the words you want to echo back to the family because that's how they understand it, how that's how they're making meaning of it. Another nurse um, from the medical surgical ICU who had one year in practice, she stated, she was very candid, she stated, I am nervous about end-of-life care, and it was comforting to know that this is how we all feel, that it's normal to feel scared and awkward about it. I'm so happy that I had the opportunity for this simulation because I feel better prepared for end-of-life care, and I know that I have so many resources and supports to help me. It just drives home that we're not in this alone, right? We have educators, we have clinical coordinators, we have a bereavement um, coordinator on most of the units. I know in our unit we have one. 
lots of senior staff that are willing to sort of talk people through this, and we're there for one another. I think just the simulation part of it, actually, they leave with a list of all the resources. It fills half a page of all the resources they have available to them to know that they're not in this situation alone. And Jennifer, if I could, I'd really love to be able to share what some of our first-year fellows, our physicians doing practice specialty in critical care, some of the comments they made, if I may. Yeah, that would be great. I think our audience would love to hear that. Once again, this was not something we initiated. This was something that they offered. Um, So one person stated, it was an excellent experience to delve into a situation that is emotionally difficult and uncomfortable, although it's an inevitable part of our, our occupation. Another one stated, I also very much value the chance to work closely with the ICU nurses. I truly believe this experience will enhance my interactions at end of life with both nursing and patients, right? So they're learning together in practice. These are sort of new physicians, right? First year fellows. So they're learning with their newly licensed nurses. I think together they feel safe in the simulation environment to learn from one another. Well, thank you, Maureen, for joining me today and sharing with us the end-of-life simulation program that you have been working on. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.